Let's go to Mark chapter 3. Lord willing, we're going to take a a pretty big bite out of the book of Mark. Uh, In preparing this, there was a time where I thought of splitting this passage up in two, um, but I think you'll see that there's a reason uh, that it's written the way that it is. And so I want to take the whole chunk and um, try and just be to the point. All right. Mark chapter 3, we'll, we'll read that in just a moment. When I was in college, uh, there was a, another student at school who's a, a mutual friend of Olivia and myself, and I think we both knew this mutual friend before we knew each other. And uh, he's a very multi-talented person. His name is Judson. And, but one of his many talents is that he loves uh, magic tricks, okay? Um, he loves to learn them and, you know, card tricks and illusions and prop tricks and all that. And I, I mean, not just as a hobbyist, he was very, very good, okay? And at one point, he had a YouTube channel, and he'd put his, the tricks he'd come up with up on YouTube. And I remember one year, uh, Bob Jones, where we all went to school, hosted a talent show. And I had a theater rehearsal, so I couldn't go, but I heard about the talent show afterward. Judson won, and he won by doing uh, an escape trick. So he had a, uh, an assistant who came up on stage. He had this big um, locked chest. You open the chest up, tied his assistant up, put her in a bag, put that bag in the chest, closed up the chest, and stood on top of it. And he took, I didn't see any of this, I'm hearing this all secondhand. Okay, so then he took a big uh, curtain, and he held it in front of him, and he lowered it down, and then he held it up, and he lowered it down, and he held it up, and the curtain dropped, and there stood the assistant. And the assistant opened up the box, and opened up the bag, and there was Judson, the magician. And even if you assume, okay, maybe there's like a big hole in the box. I'm sure there's a big hole in the box somewhere. Just to be able to switch as fast as they did was baffling to the people who were there. And my friend who told me this whole story very excitedly at the end of that night, um, he said, it must be witchcraft. He said, I've tried to figure it out, and I've tried to figure it out, and I've tried to figure it out. Of course, he was joking. He was joking. But he, you know, he's like, this, this is real magic. Like, there's no way. I think Judson has sold his soul or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> but um, the people there, they're, they're seeing something that they couldn't understand. They're trying to make sense of it. When we look at the Gospel of Mark, even as succinct as it's been in the first two and a half chapters, um, we see Jesus do some amazing things. We've seen him cast out many demons. We've seen him heal people. He's healed the lame. He's healed the leprous. We've even seen him claim to forgive sins. And we we also see that Mark is presenting this like Jesus is serving tirelessly. He is constantly on the go, and there's nothing that can slow him down. Of course, Jesus knows that his time is limited. He knows the Father's will is the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. So there's only so much time and Jesus is working feverishly to accomplish His mission in the time that He has. And those who are looking on at all the wondrous things that Jesus are doing, they are amazed and they are trying to make sense of what they're seeing. 
Today, the passage we're going to look at is two stories, and they're kind of meshed together very skillfully by Mark. And the reason that they're meshed together is because they share a common theme. It's a common theme that we'll return to at the end of the message, but I'll tell you right now that the common theme has to do with these people don't understand how Jesus is doing what he's doing. By what authority can he forgive sins? By what power can he heal people? By what authority can he cast out demons? They're trying to make sense of it, and the glaring answer is staring them in the face that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, Son of Man, but they're not ready to accept that yet. In fact, some of them never would be, and we'll actually observe some in this story who probably never would be ready to accept that. Jesus will address that. These two stories uh, are woven together, as I said. This is a literary device known as intercalation. So if, if you want to impress your friends, you can tell them about intercalation. That's when you tell multiple stories and you weave them together. So let's take a moment. We'll read this passage, and then we'll consider the two stories that uh, comprise it. Mark chapter 3. I'm on the wrong page here. And verse Uh, We're going to begin in an interesting place. We're going to begin in the middle of verse 19 because it's actually the beginning of a sentence. Uh, It's the beginning of an idea. And they went into a house is probably the first statement of this paragraph. Uh, And the multitude, verse 20, cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him for they said, He is beside himself. Or literally, he is out of his mind. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto him in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man, enter into a strong, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil or steal his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will steal or spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies uh, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme, But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Let's pause for a moment and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, thank you for these stories. Thank you that they're so skillfully given by Mark. Lord, sometimes difficult to discern the meaning, but as we uh, meditate on your word this morning, would it challenge us? Would you give clarity? Would I speak your words? Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, we have these uh, intercalated stories, okay? I really enjoy saying that, uh, and so I'm just going to keep saying that word. These two stories, it's a narrative sandwich, that's what it is, okay? So you get two pieces of bread, they're the same thing, and then you get what's in the middle, that's a thing. Um, and these two stories, not only do they share a theme, but they also share some common elements, uh, First of all, in each of these two stories that are put together, someone comes from out of town. And when that person comes from out of town, 
there is an accusation, a defense, and a counterpoint. So for each of these two stories, we're going to see accusation, defense, counterpoint. The people are trying to reason, how is Jesus doing the things that he is doing? What is the answer? And we'll see that there are two groups of people who definitely have wrong answers to that question. And one group of people who seem to have figured it out. So the way I've decided to look at these two stories that are woven together is um, we're going to eat the word here the way you eat an Oreo. And don't tell me you don't do this. We're going to eat the cream filling first, and then we'll eat the cookies, okay? So we're going to look at the story that's sandwiched in the middle first, and then we'll look at the story that's on the outsides, okay? I think that's going to help us get a good, clear understanding And then at the end, we will synthesize it the way that Mark does and see the common theme. So, let's look at the first story. The first story begins with an accusation that has to do with the means of the Messiah's miracles. Remember, we're looking at the middle of the sandwich here. So look back at verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. So here we have the accusation. The accusation is that Jesus does miracles by the power of Satan. So we have these scribes. They've apparently been up in Jerusalem and they have been debating and thinking and working hard to figure out this Jesus situation. We learned in the last passage that Um, the news of Jesus and his miraculous works had spread to the farthest corners of the Holy Land, and people are coming from everywhere to see this miracle worker. And so these religious leaders are trying to make sense of it. They, They meet together in Jerusalem, and they figured it out. So they come down uh, to Capernaum from, or come up to Capernaum from Jerusalem in order to announce that they have figured out how Jesus is doing all of this. Here's their answer. They're putting together two truths. Jesus is, in their mind, blaspheming by calling himself God, but he seems to be doing miraculous, good, miraculous works. Supernatural works that shouldn't be possible to a normal person. What is the only answer? Well, the only answer is that Jesus is doing these miracles by the power of Satan. And they've worked up, they've worked very hard to accomplish this wisdom. Here is the wisdom that we offer as the scribes of Israel. From our our high office, we have descended to the people to clarify this. And with a few words, Jesus turns their wisdom to foolishness. Because we see Jesus' defense, and his main defense is this. Is Satan's kingdom divided? Jesus says, your argument makes no sense. You've come to accuse me of working by the devil's power, but that can't be possible. So he actually speaks two parables in answer to clarify his point. Verse 23, Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, That house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. They're saying, your mighty works are empowered by the devil. 
Jesus says, what's the main mighty work I've been doing around here? I've been casting out demons. Why would Satan cast out demons? He says, what, what you're suggesting, scribes, is that Satan's army is so disorganized that he's empowering somebody to come and cast out his own followers. He says, if a house be divided against itself, it cannot stand. If a kingdom be divided against itself, it cannot stand, but hath an end. He's saying, you're suggesting that Satan's power is so weak that he can't organize his own battle plan. And what Jesus is implying is you have witnessed that Satan's power is not weak. Satan had been oppressing these people. We see the numbers of people who are possessed by demons, the number of people who are afflicted by demonic disease, and all of this. And the Jewish leaders for many, many years and generations had been trying to solve the problem of demon oppression through their own religious ceremony. And guess what? It didn't work. Satan, uh, Jesus is saying, do you think that Satan is so weak and disorganized that he's going to send a messenger to cast out his own followers that doesn't make any sense at all. Then Jesus gives a second parable. He speaks of the strong man. Verse 27, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Jesus is explaining what is actually happening as Jesus is facing off against the powers of hell in his ministry. He says, it's like if you wanted to steal something from a strong man's house. Okay, What is the thing to be stolen? Well, the thing to be stolen is souls. Who is the strong man? The strong man is Satan. And who is the one coming to steal away those souls? It's Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus is saying, my acts against the kingdom of Satan, their purpose is to throw Satan off his guard so that he can be overcome. Jesus is not doing the work of the devil. He is fighting a war against the devil. But I think it's important to stop here and notice the depiction of Satan's power. In this parable, Satan is the strong man. And I'll tell you, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is a powerful being and he holds sway over much of the world today. And as it is today, so it was in Jesus' time. Satan is doing a work in the world. And I think if we turn a blind eye to the spiritual warfare that's going on in the hearts and minds of mankind and in the world as a whole, we do a disservice. How can we fight in God's army as we've been called to do if we disregard the fact that there is an adversary or a war? It's unpopular to talk about Satan and the powers of hell. It's unpopular to talk about the devils working in the world. And there are a lot of even professing Christians who want to disregard the existence of Satan and demons as a whole. They would look at Scripture and view it as a metaphor. Oh, well, Satan's name means adversary. So Satan is a metaphorical representation of anything that stands opposed to God. 
No, Scripture is very clear. Satan is a real being who certainly does lead the army of those who are opposed to God. And I think as we read through Scripture, we're going to get a very distorted view of God's working in the world if we deny the fact that there is a battle going on. But Jesus came to spoil the strong man's house. He steals away the souls of the redeemed and takes them to the kingdom of God. It is a mighty work. Because there is a strong man, but there is one mightier, and only one mightier, and it is Jesus Christ Himself. You and I can't overcome Satan. We're the ones who are bound by Him, who need to be freed by Jesus Christ. It's His work and His alone that can free people from the power of sin, death, hell, and Satan. Jesus' defense is that their argument makes no sense. Could Satan's kingdom be divided? Absolutely not. Satan is, Jesus is not acting by the power of Satan. He is acting against the power of Satan. You'll notice that actually the scribes don't seem to have a response to this at all. They figure, we put all that effort to figure this out and it seems like we can't be right here. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He offers, we had the accusation, we had the defense. Jesus offers a counterpoint. And I will say that Jesus' counterpoint, if you take it out of context, can actually trip up believers. And I've had a number of um, counseling opportunities through the years where these verses that I'm about to uh, look at with you are taken out of context and it actually makes people unnecessarily afraid of God's judgment who live in God's mercy. Uh, so we'll see that the counterpoint Jesus speaks of the unpardonable sin. Have you heard this term before? The unpardonable sin? Well, here it is. We're going to talk about it. Verse 28. Remember, Jesus is still addressing these scribes who've leveled this accusation against him. He says, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies, even blasphemies, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Jesus is warning these scribes. He's warning them, you are coming dangerously close to a serious sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that this sin is unforgivable. Well, certainly, people in this room, I hope you're interested to know what this sin is that cannot be forgiven. And I think what you're going to find is Jesus is not teaching that people can lose their salvation. Certainly not. Certainly not. This has been construed that way and people are ripping this out of the story that it falls in. This is not teaching that there are uh, people out there that we shouldn't even bother to reach because they've committed this sin and they can't be forgiven anyway. And I'll say, I've faced situations with people who struggle many, many years with doubt of their salvation. They struggle with um, fear about eternity because they feel that they haven't settled the question. And you remind them of God's promises and this almost always comes up, well, what if I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Doesn't the Bible say that even if I come for to ask for forgiveness if I've committed this one sin, I won't be forgiven? Well, let's take a closer look and I think that you'll see 
exactly what's being talked about here and how it applies to the gospel as you already know it. This is not a different gospel. This is just an application of the gospel we already have. Okay? So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? When I was uh, at Bible college, physically there, I had to do a project about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then we did an in-class survey of what does the Bible say about blasphemy from Genesis to Revelation? And what is, when do we see this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And it's pretty much contained to just a couple of passages. And then looking at those passages, what is meant exactly by it? Now, we're not going to do that whole study this morning. So let me just succinctly tell you that the blasphemy of, of the Holy Spirit is when a person persistently and continuously attributes the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. Let me, let me try and illustrate this for you. Imagine this. You invite your friend to church. And they come and they sit through a sermon and at the end, they feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. They feel that they're being drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. They, they, they feel the conviction of their sin. They know that they are in the wrong and deserving of God's judgment. And as they feel this supernatural working in their hearts, they say, wow, that was crazy. That was a crazy feeling. I think there's something demonic going on in that church. And then you bring them back week after week and this superstitious friend of yours, they're hearing the Word of God, they're feeling the conviction, but they're saying, this, is, this can't be God. This must be something else. Let me ask you something. If somebody persisted in that belief, if they persisted in believing that the Holy Spirit's work in their life was actually a work of the devil, would that person's sin be forgiven? No. As long as they hold that opinion, their pleas for forgiveness to God will exclude the work of Christ. So if you are saying, the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart, it must be the devil's working, then you're not going to accept Jesus. And if you won't accept Jesus, how can your sins be forgiven? Jesus is Now let's go back and look at what these scribes exactly are doing. They're saying... The miraculous work that Jesus is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit is actually the work of the devil. Jesus warns them that, that if they keep their antagonism towards Jesus Christ and towards His working in the world and towards His forgiving power, they cannot be forgiven. They may go to Yahweh and ask for forgiveness, but if they reject the Spirit and the Son, their forgiveness will not be granted. That's why Jesus taught, I am the way the truth, and the life. You must accept Jesus' work through the Holy Spirit in order to be forgiven. You cannot be forgiven otherwise. So guess what? If you've come to the Lord and humbled yourself in faith and repentance, believed in Jesus Christ and submitted to the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you have not committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You've been delivered from it. Because in a very real sense, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just the opposite of faith and repentance. If faith and repentance is accepting what Jesus taught and did, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting it. Jesus is using this counterpoint to confront them about their failure to submit themselves before the Messiah who stood so clearly and gave them such clear teaching and such clear signs and they still reject His work as the work of Satan. How could they be forgiven? I hope that clarifies that for you some. 
And uh, of course, there are a lot of resources. If, if this passage has always beleaguered you, and I'll tell you, before I really did the study, it always kind of caught my attention. And I think it certainly was meant to catch our attention, to make us think deeply about what it means to spurn or blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to reject the work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. So Jesus, he offers to these scribes not just a defense, but also this counterpoint, a warning. So we've eaten the cream of the Oreo. Okay, We took that middle story. We've, we've worked our way through it. Let's take a moment now for the cookie. And I understand the cookie is probably your less favorite part, but this cookie is really good. Okay, America's favorite cookie, isn't it? Isn't that what they say? Or milk's favorite cookie, I guess. Um, that's Oreos, not the gospel. The gospel is definitely not America's favorite cookie. Uh, I digress. Okay, let's look at this story, the outside of the sand, the bread of the sandwich here, this, that, which deals with an accusation about the state of the Savior's sanity. Did you notice alliteration on both of the main points? I, I cannot stop. I cannot stop. All right, the state of the Savior's sanity. Let's read uh, beginning uh, at, this, at the last phrase of verse 19. And they went into a house, probably Peter's house. That's where a lot of the stuff in Capernaum happens, is Peter's house where Jesus lives when he's at Capernaum. And the multitude cometh together, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends, and this word friends can also be rendered family, which is what I'm going to argue for here, when his friends or family heard of it, they went out and lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. Then look down at verse 31. We're going to see this story continued on. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let me pause to say that Scripture tells us several times that there were other children that were born to Mary and Joseph. So point one for Protestant doctrine, okay? Uh, I don't know how you, what you do with the verses that speak, in some cases by name, about Jesus' brothers who were born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. Um, they exist. There are at least four brothers. You could argue for possibly six. And there are several sisters. We don't get a name in Scripture. These are the half-siblings of Jesus. Uh, and so here, Jesus' brothers and Mary come down, presumably from Nazareth to Capernaum, because they've heard about what's going on with Jesus. And what they have determined is that he's lost his mind. Uh, you see, in the King James, it's rendered, he is beside himself, but the, the literal words mean he has lost his mind. They're, they're, they're hearing about how tirelessly Jesus is working. They're hearing about the claims that Jesus is making. They're hearing about the, the discord that he's stirring up against the Jewish leaders. They're hearing about <clears throat> these masses of... Um, what, what maybe society thought of as deplorable people, okay, the demon-possessed, the sick, 
the lame, and all these people are kind of flocking to Jesus. In this story, we see that there are so many people in Peter's house, so many needy people, desperate people. Okay, These are the outcasts of society, mostly, that are flocking to Jesus. There are so many people in Peter's house that they couldn't even like make and eat food. They were elbow to elbow with people desperate for help. And so Jesus' family... They hear of this, and they come down from Nazareth, and actually the passage, uh, the word you have in your Bible is, they came to lay hold of him. It's the same word that's translated arrest everywhere else in the New Testament, or lay hold, but it means the same thing. They came to commit Jesus. Okay? He was to be committed. They were going to take him by force back home because he's lost his mind. The accusation is this. Being poured out for the Father is insane. Giving everything for God is insane. Abandoning your home and going against your culture for the sake of God, you must be crazy. Their accusation, the accusation primarily of Jesus' brothers and Mary is present as well, reveals that they didn't understand. And we know, actually, from other passages in the Gospels that at this point, though Mary believed, Jesus' brothers did not believe. Several of them, maybe all of them, would eventually believe. But at this point, they are very skeptical of Jesus' claims and His works. Their accusation reveals their unbelief. If they believed who Jesus was, They would know the importance of his mission and his extreme behavior would make perfect sense. But they don't believe. So they don't understand. Which leads to Jesus' response. And Jesus' response teaches us that doing God's will is a preeminent priority. Verse 31. There came then his brethren and his mother and standing without, so they're outside the house, they're sending unto him. They can't get into the house. So they pass message through the house that they're outside and they'd like to speak with Jesus. And the multitude sat about him and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without, or outside, seek for thee. And he answered them saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus' response is that his obedience to the will of God is more important even than his blood relations. If it was a choice between God's will or Jesus' blood family, he was going to take God's will. I'll tell you what, and I know this from experience, when you choose to live a life that honors God, you will seem crazy to people who don't believe. You will seem totally bonkers to them. They won't get it. Wait, you just, you just turned down triple overtime so you could go to church? They don't pay you at church, do they? What? Wait, you don't, you don't do drugs? You don't drink? 
man, that's what I live for. I can't wait until 5 o'clock so I can just get away from it all. But you don't make any sense to me. Like, you, you don't watch all that filth on your phone? Come on, nobody would ever know. Yeah, maybe people think that's kind of gross, but like, people would never know. Why would you not do something you enjoy even if people would never know? You're crazy. What you believe in a big man in the sky who grants wishes and forgives all the things you've done wrong, I know, understand, that's blasphemous. I have literally seen somebody say that online this last week. They used like almost that exact expression. They think it's crazy. They think it's crazy because they don't believe. And that's what we should expect. We know that the world without Christ stands opposed to the things of God. And the fact of the matter is that we should expect to be weird to our friends. We should expect to stand out in the crowd. We should expect all of that because I'll tell you what, if you look and act and talk exactly like the world, that's revealing something about your heart. It is, it is an evidence of an issue of belief. Jesus' family didn't believe, so they thought he was crazy. Be prepared. Believing in God and doing His will will seem crazy to those who are without. But those who know Christ, we know from experience that God's way is the best way. In His statement that Jesus makes about His true family, Christ is also making a searing indictment of His family's condition. So here's His counterpoint. <clears throat> his counterpoint is this. My real family are those who do God's will. The insinuation is that Christ's relationship to others in the family of God was far more important to Him than His relationship to even His own blood relatives. Now, understand, He's not discarding His family. And we'll see um, in, in other Gospel uh, narratives, Jesus reaches out to His family. He demonstrates to them and we see that uh, at least two of his brothers would become not just Christians, but very influential in the early church. So it's not that Jesus is discarding his family. He's showing his priorities. This is totally consistent with Jesus' teaching. We've talked before about Jesus' statement, If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and brother, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is using a hyperbolic statement to say, Your love for me. And your love for the Father's will should be so great that every other relationship hardly matters at all. It seems like hatred in comparison. And if you had to lose your family to follow God, would you do it? Some of you have already crossed that bridge. Some of you know what it's like to stand for the Lord and be rejected by your family. And you've made every effort to reach out and you've made every effort to make things, uh, to, to have peace. But they just don't get you. Every time they're around you, they just feel like icky. Well, here's the Holy Spirit tapping on their hearts. They don't like it. Jesus is saying, my desire to obey the Father is so great that if I have to choose between God's family and my family, I'll choose God every time. It's a hard thing. 
It is such a hard thing that later when Jesus would make such statements to his followers, many people just walked away. Because they didn't actually believe. They thought, it's crazy. So what's the common theme here between these two stories? Now I will say, in Turkulation, sometimes it's because the stories happened at the exact same time. And sometimes it's just because the author is trying to emphasize that these have the same theme. There's nothing in this text that makes it seem like these had to have happened at the exact same time, that the scribes and Jesus' family were at this house at the exact same time. It could just be that Mark is putting these stories together just to show us the similarity between these two events. Or they could have happened at the same time. Either of those things are possible. There are other times where there's intercalation happening, and yes, it's very clear that these things are happening at the exact same time. And that's God sovereignly orchestrating those events so that we could see clearly a common theme between them. So what is the common theme? The common theme is that God's will is opposed by God's enemies and known by His children. God's will seems wrong or crazy or even satanic to those who don't know God. But God's will is preeminent to those who do know Him. The scribes and Jesus' brothers called Jesus crazy or possessed. Why? Because they didn't believe. Jesus and His disciples labored, were poured out, suffered scorn. Why? Because they did believe. Jesus would say to His disciples, Marvel not if men hate you and persecute you because they hated me first. And we see that happening even in this story. One final application I want us to consider from this passage as we look at these different groups. We have the scribes, their accusation. We have Jesus' family, their accusation. We have the disciples and their faith and their willingness to be taught of Christ and to follow Him. We have all these people in this story So the question, I think, is what will you do with Jesus? The the title of the sermon is obviously stolen from C.S. Lewis's writings, where C.S. Lewis weighs out the fact that there's only really three things you can do with Jesus. You can call him a liar or a devil. You can call him crazy. Or you can bow down before him as Lord. Those are your options. That's, That's what you can do with Jesus. Some in this story called him a liar, a demon, a servant of the devil. Some called him a lunatic. doesn't make any sense why he would stir up so much trouble. Why would he make such wild claims? Why would he pour himself out uh, and not even eat or sleep so that he could serve others? None of this makes any sense to us. He must be crazy. But some in this story called him Lord. Some believed. They gathered to him. They left all followed Him, even unto death, because His words were truth and His deeds were marvelous. Jesus calls to you to believe. To turn from your sin and unbelief to Christ. And how people respond to that call will be one of these three ways. You can spit on Him. You can dismiss Him. Or you can bow. Again, I stole that from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I think that's the, such a clear teaching of this passage today. 
what will we do with Jesus? And that's not just a question for those who have never been saved. That's a question for those who claim to follow Christ. Does your life show that you believe? Does your life show that you bow? Does your life show that your heart has been changed? Are you different? Do you stand out? Let's take a moment. We'll thank God uh, for what he's showed us in his word. And then we'll observe the Lord's table this morning. Father, thank you for sending your son. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that Jesus is controversial. He's not more of the same. He came to change the world. He came to draw people into the kingdom of God to steal them from the bonds of Satan and their sin. Lord, help us to submit ourselves. Even when the way is hard, even when the teaching is hard, would we cling to Christ? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.